Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Paul Gilmartin. He is a comedian, performer, writer, and the host of the long-running podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. That is a weekly interview show in which Paul talks with all kinds of people, from well-known artists and entertainers to ordinary folks about issues of mental health, addiction, and just personal struggles of all kinds. I myself was a guest on the Mental Illness Happy Hour back in 2011. And when Paul featured our interview last month as part of a best of series, it occurred to me that it would be a nice idea to get him on this podcast. We had a really lovely conversation and uh, it covered what he's learned about mental health struggles over the years and how his own life circumstances have played a big part in his podcast and the way he talks about things and talks with other people. Paul is never afraid to get really personal. So if you think that the main part of this interview is revealing, stick around for more than half an hour of bonus content, which is available to paying subscribers of this podcast, Substack. It gets really, really, really personal. As you may know, this is something I'm trying this year. I'm keeping guests, guests who are willing anyway, a little extra longer for some premium chat. And you can hear that at megandaum.substack.com. And uh, Subscribe, you know, subscribe at any level. It's totally worth it, though. Paul asked me some personal questions, too, and uh, I actually answer them. At any rate, Paul was incredibly generous through this entire interview, and I think you'll like it. So here it is. Paul Gilmartin, welcome to The Unspeakable. Ah, Thanks for having me, Megan. It's nice to reconnect with you. I know. So this is kind of amazing. We last spoke when I was on your podcast, and I think that was 11 years ago. That sounds about right. Yeah. You were one of my first 100 guests, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Maybe even less than that, maybe even earlier than that, because I started the podcast in 2011. Okay. Because I think 2011 is when I came on, I think. Okay, so I was wondering how long you'd been doing the podcast because so you I think is it fair to say you're a pioneer? You're one of the first. I know I went to your house. Yes. So that's like very old school. They're very old school. We had a little setup. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And your podcast is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, which is one of the greatest names for a podcast that I've heard even still. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, well, I want to talk about like everything that's happened in the mental health arena, including in your own mind and mine in the years since. But why don't we just start off by you telling us why you started this podcast, what you even knew about podcasts back then, what you were trying to get out of it, I'm assuming you were trying to get rich from doing the podcast. <laughs> uh, I assume you're being sarcastic. Um, Never. No. <laughs> I'm trying to get rich doing this. Yeah. That's why I'm going to I, I would go that. into yeah. poetry. I think there's a better chance of uh, uh, striking it rich these days. In, yeah. in uh, Macrame. I think you could go into macrame <laughs> and possibly. Art fairs. Gold mine. Gold mine. <laughs> Uh, I started the podcast. Uh, it was inspired by me going off my meds in 2010, late 2010, thinking, oh, I don't need these anymore. I had changed my diet. 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of a common thing for people that take meds. You know, we don't like trusting big pharma. And I believe in medication. I'd been under the care of a psychiatrist, been to therapy, uh, was still going to therapy, had been sober for, God, seven years, going to support groups. And did you, sorry, just did you have a diagnosis just in case people don't know you? Like what was, what was wrong with you basically? I asked my uh, psychiatrist one time, what's the name for, you know, my condition? And he said, uh, treatment resistant depression due to childhood adversity. Um, so I now put that on my business card. I like that it has a name. Yeah. Does it have an acronym? <laughs> I'm not sure what that would be. It's too yeah. it's too early in the too day. Too many consonants. Yeah. There's not enough vowels in that. Okay. All right. So you've gone off your meds. Yeah. And and when I tried going off my meds before, I usually knew within a you know, two months whether or not it was a bad idea. But this time I felt good for about four months. So I thought I was out of the woods. And when the depression came back, I didn't recognize it as the depression. And when I finally did, I, and I mean, you know, it got into suicidal ideation, crying a lot, uh, feeling hopeless. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, it's the depression. And I went back on my meds, you know, felt almost instantly better. And I thought, I've got all this experience in having my mental health treated and believe that depression is a real thing. And I got fooled by it. And I thought the world could really use some robust, detailed conversations about this because I felt like from my experience in support groups where the, the conversations were raw and real and unfiltered and sometimes darkly funny, sometimes heartbreaking, I thought, what if I brought that instead of to addiction, just to conversations about mental health in general. Because I felt like it, there was two ways that mental health was being talked about. One was kind of precious and new agey and, you know, sandals and robes and Mother Earth. Mm. And the other one was, you know, Dr. Phil barking at you. Right. You know, or something kind of academic and dry. And I, you know, I was still hosting a TV show at that time. So, you know, it was just a, it was just a hobby and I thought it'd be something that I would enjoy. And it, it just kind of took off. And a couple of months later, the TV show got canceled and I just felt like the universe was saying to me, this is your place now. And you know, it took me a couple of years to begin to generate income doing it but you know bit by and I was married at the time so my my then wife was taking over the bills you had health insurance you had health insurance that's what you're I, saying I did I did that's through, all that matters through her yes and by the way my health insurance these days is fourteen hundred dollars a month and they deny almost yeah, don't, every don't, claim don't, don't get me started on this yeah so that's that's how it started 
Yeah. And so we should say you had a background in comedy, you're a performer, you're you were in the entertainment business. Did you you're a comedian? Would you call yourself a comedian? You were doing stand up as well? Yeah, yeah, I started doing stand up in 87 and then I started doing a show called Dinner and a Movie in 1995 and I did that till 2011 and really kind of did stand up all along the way. Uh, until about eh, 2011, 2012, I was like, I have no desire to go on the road anymore. Yeah. And we should say you did dinner and a movie with Annabelle Gerwich, yes. my friend yes. who has been on this podcast. Yeah. People might be familiar with her. So, And she's been a guest on my podcast. I think she was one of the yeah. first 20 uh, guests I had. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's a wonderful author and person. So, okay. And were you interviewing mostly comics at the time? Were you doing like the Mark Maron thing where you had yes. comedians on yes. talking about stuff? Yes. Okay. And then did you sort of run out of them? <laughs> that was kind of what happens to uh, a lot of us. It's, it's more that I began stumbling across stories that I thought could really widen the I don't know, the, the stories of experiences that people had. And I, it had never occurred to me that listeners might be interesting guests. And I got an email from a woman named Nadare Fanoyan, who was an uh, Iranian exile, who in the mid-80s, when the Ayatollah came to power, she and her then-husband were Marxists and uh, it's 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 not very widely known that there were many many factions vying for power in Iran at that time. It wasn't just uh, pro Shah people and people who wanted the Ayatollah in power. So one of the first things the Ayatollah did was he eliminated all the competing factions through jailing and executions. And her husband was arrested and executed and she was forced to flee the country like four months pregnant with their oh my gosh with their son and when she emailed me that story i was like holy shit i gotta i gotta talk to her yeah um so that that's when i realized you know i think the wheelhouse of the podcast and what i felt also was was like i don't know duty is too strong of a word but that airing the widest spectrum of stories and voices, especially those that are underrepresented, would be uh, a strength for the podcast and also keep me interested in doing the podcast. Yeah. And I mean, one of the great things about the podcast is that you are so easygoing and you have such a great sense of humor about a lot of really dark stuff. And so I think you're able to bring that out in your guests. Is that something that you're mindful of, like when you're choosing who to talk with? Do you ever say like, oh, I think <laughs> I would love to talk about so-and-so, but either they're not, I feel like they might not be ready to talk about this stuff, or it might just not come off quite as, you know, the way you want it to. I don't seek out a sense of humor in my guests. It's more could the podcast use this story and are they able to you know potentially convey it in a way that can hold people's attention because i have interviewed people whose stories might be compelling i don't really know until i sit down with the with them at a mic but if you're going to ask somebody to you know sit and listen for an hour you really kind of need 
that that person to be able to to hold their attention. And it's not like I need raconteurs, but people who are able to tell a story. And sometimes it takes some some prodding and pulling the stuff out or reclarifying stuff on on my end. But I like to think of sense of humor in an interview as a bonus rather than, you know, the the meat and potatoes. It's 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 more kind of the the dessert. Uh, because I've also had guests where there was a lot of humor, but it was in place of the vulnerability. And that doesn't cut it for me as an episode. Are you talking about me? I think I might have been one of those <laughs> no, people. Yours was I never awesome. Do yours no, was- I never do that. Yeah. Well, but you have a really nice way of lightening the mood. You're never diminishing what people are saying, but you're able to kind of like take a beat and just kind of throw in something. It's a, There's a relief. You have a sort of comic sense of comic relief and timing. Thanks. I'm not saying that it's always funny, but like I never, when I'm listening, I never feel like, oh my God, like it's not, you're never like sort of listening with by peering through your fingers. You know what I mean? Uh, you've never listened to all the episodes, Megan. Okay. Sorry. You know what? I haven't heard the show in 10 years, Paul, <laughs> since I've been on. There's okay. a couple of times where I've been like, wow, that was forced. That was incredibly inappropriate. But I, I feel like most of the time I have a good sense of where to inject humor. And, you know, it's one of the things that I love about the support group meetings that I go to is, you know, we need it. We need that light part of, uh, of things because I think it helps with the, the healing and, and just living with a, a struggle. What kind of support group meetings do you go to? I go to mostly stuff around uh, addiction addiction and 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 also struggles with intimacy uh issues. And you have talked about how some of those intimacy issues arose because of the way you were raised, especially your relationship with your mother and I think you have things to say around that that we don't hear very often. So maybe we should just get right into that sure. by way of kind of talking about how, you know, maybe other people struggle with these things without even knowing how to articulate it. So what was the dynamic exactly? Uh, the dynamic was, you know, my dad was kind of a checked out alcoholic, not abusive, more so uh, neglectful, just, you know, trapped in his head at the end of the couch. And so I don't know whether or not it was a result of that, but I became my mom's spouse in a lot of ways, you know, seven or eight. She began, you know, confessing her unhappiness in her marriage to me, uh, you know, breaking down and crying about how she wanted to leave all of us and leave my dad because we were selfish bastards. And, and I felt like it was my job from then on to keep her happy. And, you know, one of the things that I've come to realize that quite a few mothers do is they violate their children through having access to their bodies and caring for them as a mother. And, you know, I would get creeped out feelings from my mom. You know, for instance, one of the things she did that I never really confronted until decades later was she took my temperature rectally until I was eight, nine years old. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I just remember feeling like she was tricking me. And I asked her one time, why do we still do it this way? And she said, because I'm afraid you're going to bite down on the thermometer. And I just remember thinking she's lying. But I would push it out of my mind because I would say moms don't do that. And I mean, uh, 
you know, people that survive stuff that's on the sexual abuse spectrum, one of the first things we do is we minimize what's happening to us because we would rather say that it's normal or, you know, we deserve it or we're making too big of a deal of it than facing the truth, which is I'm in the care of a predator for another decade. Mm -hmm. And so- Did you have- Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. I, keep going. I, I'm curious if you had siblings, but finish your yes, sentence. Yes. Uh, I was raised with uh, with a brother. We also had a cousin who was raised with us, but he was out of the, the, the house at that time. He was 13, 13 years older than me. But they did not experience the same thing. My brother was adopted, and I, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but he was also somebody who stood up to my mother very early on, not necessarily from you know those kinds of things but just in general he was uh they they as long as i can remember they've always kind of uh, locked horns so you know i think i checked a lot of the boxes for the kind of child that somebody who is sick will get their needs met from and i don't know whether or not my mother's needs you know whether whether or not sex was even on her radar but in in healing it doesn't matter it's it's what i felt uh that i had to deal with rather than saying you know is is she legally culpable for what happened yeah. or what was her intention you know that's a completely separate separate issue you know when there were other things that happened that I would explain each one away, and it really wasn't until decades later when I got into the support group for intimacy issues that I could look at the pattern and no longer deny the truth. And that's when it all just came out, you know, all the sadness, all the grief, all the anger. And I, it was like I was transported back to being 10, 11 years old. And I suppose in many ways, it was like when somebody has a parent die. But for me, it was the image I'd created of my mother that died. And I was so confused because I was like, you know, I've, all these years I had thought that, you know, down was up, left was right. Where's the truth in anything now? And I just desperately wanted a mother uh, figure. And it was really, really hard, and I ultimately had to cut contact with her. And it, it wasn't necessarily because of the things she did. It's because she was not respecting the boundaries that I had asked her to respect, and and it was affecting my my mental health. Like even as an adult, she wasn't respecting the boundaries. Yeah, I cut contact for about a year or two because I was like, I, I can't even be on the phone with this person. Uh, and then eventually when we, uh, you know, reconnected through letters, uh, I said, you know, he, if we're going to have a relationship, here's the things that I need respected. And one of them was, I don't want to talk about the past. And she respected mm -hmm. that for one letter. And then, you know, she just started talking about the past. And, you know, one of the things that really fucking bothered me is she said, well, maybe you're depressed because you know, a relative who babysat you, you know, might have abused you. And uh, it, it made me so angry and sad and depressed. I was just like, I'm done. I'm done. Wow. Yeah. 
how many years elapsed between you being out of the house? I mean, I'm assuming you you went to college mm-hmm. and realizing that your intimate relationships were such that you needed to get help for it. You you say that you started getting help around those issues. Like, was it were you in your 30s by then? In your 20s? No, I was in my late 40s, uh, and I was married, and I'd had a history of cheating objectifying women, just uh, not being the guy that that I wanted to be. And I had the feeling that I was going to die never knowing what it was like to have my heart connected in the bedroom. And I might not have been able to put that into words, but I knew there was something wrong with me and when i got sober i stopped the 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 philandering but you know that's not enough to to heal and to really get insight into the way that i was playing this shitty hand that was dealt to me as a kid it's like yeah i i wasn't at fault for what happened to me as a kid but i had to take responsibility for how i was dealing with it as an adult and i was not dealing with it well you know i would look at pornography obsessively and not that there's anything you know necessarily wrong with some pornography it's i was using it rather than as a i don't know what verb to use a, a, as a release i was using it to escape my feelings and that is a big difference and so one of the things that i started doing in this support group was withdrawing from the things that I used to use to soothe my feelings. And, you know, it made a lot of sense that, of course, this would be my go-to, especially being sober from drugs and alcohol, because it was my first drug. When you're sexualized or raised in a sexually charged environment, for a lot of us, becomes our go-to because it's it's all we know. So I remember as a kid just feeling like, you know, the the show and tell that you do with kids your your age, which is very natural and normal, it always felt like it was way more important to me than it was to any other of the kids on the block. And I so I just felt like a pervert from very early on. And there was also a time, I think I was like, I don't know, just before puberty where my mom gave me a bath because I had gravel in, in my knee. And I just remember thinking, I am too old for this. And I got, and I got aroused. Mm-hmm. And I, I mm-hmm. that was so disturbing to me because I felt like it was my fault. And it wasn't until I was in therapy years later and a therapist was like, you know, that's a pretty normal reaction to being in a sexually charged, inappropriate environment. And And so I was finally able to, you know, not blame myself for that. But those are just kind of some instances where I got very confused into what I was blaming myself for and what I needed to just say, hey, it was what it was. Let's let's focus on healing. Mm. Because there's something so seductive and satisfying about blaming yourself, right? It's, it's, It's a sense of control, a sick sense of control. Because 
If we can find somebody to blame, even if it's us, we can make sense of the world rather. Right. It's kind of like believing in conspiracy theories, right? right? Like I have, like it's, I can't sit with the uncertainty or just the chaos of a situation. I have to trace it back to something concrete. Yeah. And so blaming myself is the closest thing at hand. Yeah. I see it in so many things in in the world, the, the ways that we will avoid saying to ourselves, the world can be really chaotic and unjust and also nuanced, that, that it's not good or evil. You know, when you watch a, a documentary about Hitler, yes, Hitler was evil, but there were also a lot of other factors, which was, you know, which were the hunger that was going on and people's willingness to accept a scapegoat and a fucking nut job taking complete power and throwing democracy out the window. You can't ignore Mm -hmm. all of those factors in his rise to power. And so I think similarly, when we experience something that's horrifying in our, in our daily lives, it's much easier to just go, I'm dirty, or that person's a monster, rather than saying, yeah, there's also a lot of other factors going into this that are fucking mind-bogglingly complicated. Yeah, yeah. So what you're describing, is that stuff you started wrestling with as recently as like 11 years ago when you started the podcast? Because you're talking about being in your late 40s when you entered therapy for this stuff. It was uh, about a year or two into doing the podcast that this this happened. And uh, yeah, it was so, you know, the listeners kind of got to or had to listen to me process this stuff. And I think ultimately it was good, but I was really on the fence as to what I was sharing, the way that I was sharing it, because I was a fucking mess. And, you know, people would, you know, email me and say, you're so brave for sharing this and, you know, letting us in on that. And honestly, Probably the biggest part of it for me was I wanted to feel seen and validated. It, it my needs were more selfishly oriented than thinking I'm going to be of service by, you know, airing this this publicly. Yeah, it's tricky to know with these podcasts how vulnerable to be with your audience because I have found that people really respond to that. I've been vulnerable with my listeners, not over mental health stuff, but you know, professional struggles and just the process of trying to build a new career, you know, the the, the mid-career pivot, as I've talked about. And, you know, I've had people say, oh, that really resonates. It, you know, it only deepens my parasocial relationship with you. Uh, <laughs> but I've uh, also had people say, you know, hey, don't do that. That's, you don't want to show your hand like that. You know, it's not professional. Yeah. But we're in a new new era here. We we are. And I think one of the mediums or one of the strengths of the medium of podcasting is detailed, nuanced discussions, especially conversations that people are afraid to have. You know, the voyeuristic experience of being a fly on the wall when two people are talking about something that maybe you've kept secret your your whole life and it's like seeing you know i think we, we a lot of us grow up in families where 
it's just the same play over and over again. We know our lines, we know our part, and it's just easier to go along with it than it is to say, I'm tired of playing this part. And so when we hear somebody, you know, putting on a play that has a different ending with different lines, it, it can be really life altering for us because now we have the words maybe to say, I'm not going to participate in this sick dynamic anymore. So you started the podcast about 12 years ago now. Mm -hmm. It seems like a lifetime ago. It was the Obama administration. Politically, you know, if you, you, you generally knew where you were on the spectrum and it wasn't a huge deal if your friend didn't agree with you on every single issue. Yeah. And I don't even know that like we were talking about the opioid crisis as much back then, just in terms of discussions around addiction. So what have you seen over these 12 years, like in terms of the way people talk about their own mental health or their own addiction or their own struggles? I think it's definitely the conversation has opened, and I think people are a lot less ashamed nowadays to uh, speak their truths and talk about their struggles. And it's it, it's very encouraging. It's very encouraging. But you know, the opioid the opioid crisis and the homelessness uh, issue was nothing back then, like it is today. And, you know, obviously a lot of it can be blamed on Big Pharma and Oxycontin and the Sackler family, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of it is also, you know, the comorbidity of untreated mental illness and addiction. And yeah. I think most people would agree when you look at the homeless population, it's pretty rare that there isn't the presence of untreated mental illness or addiction. That is true. <laughs> Although people like to blame it on various other factors. I mean, those factors exist. I mean, certainly economics. I mean, it's fucking hard to make a living and housing is ridiculously out of control. And there's certainly that segment of the homeless population. So, you know, I certainly don't want to throw them under the bus and say, hey, just get your head right and you'll find a place to live and pay rent. Just just get a better realtor so you can buy a house. <laughs> you just need yeah. a better broker. Yeah. Consider a studio apartment. Yeah. But, you know, realize you have to live in a condo. Yeah. I, it's it, It's frustrating because I think that for some reason there is a reluctance to, you know, blame addiction, not blame, or just, you know, look straight squarely at addiction and mental health issues with people on the street. And, you know, I don't, this doesn't, I really don't want this to get into a political discussion as so complicated. And I don't even feel qualified to really have anything beyond the obvious opinions about this. But I wonder, like, do you have conversations with people who struggle with addiction and who maybe even have been on the streets about oh my God, what yes. would be the appropriate course of action for people on the streets? Well, the, the sad fact is most of them would prefer to keep doing what they're doing as, as much as they may hate it rather than trusting people who want to help them. Um, yeah. There's you know, so much trauma in people that are on the streets and the addiction is so strong 
and the difficulty with living a disciplined life and you know putting off immediate gratification for a long-term goal is really really hard you know a lot of people i mean it, neurologically people that are raised in traumatic environments as children their brains are different they have a thinner uh, frontal cortex of, of of their brain which is where the executive function is that that you know where there is the rational thinking so it it's it's sadly really really difficult it's 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 not a matter of you know well people aren't coming up to them and saying hey come to this support group meeting or go see a psychiatrist it's them showing up for the appointment or the the meeting and i've known many many people who have overdosed and died in the in the last 10 years and a lot of them kids a lot of them you know came into our support group and they were seven they were still in high school and watching them just die is so heartbreaking and they are living on the streets literally and coming into your meetings some of them yes some of them no some of them in you know well-to-do homes with loving parents and not that their you know their family situation is ideal but it's addiction is so powerful especially opioids yeah it's hard to even know where to start I mean, we talk so much now about not only the mental health crisis on the streets, but even more so the mental crisis among young people, because mm -hmm. you've got now this huge subset of people across the socioeconomic spectrum uh, who are really deeply struggling. Uh, and this was going on before the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic lockdowns made it exponentially worse. A lot of people blame it on social media, on screens, on alienation, on not having in-person interactions. What is your go-to diagnosis, Paul Gilmartin? <laughs> there, there is no one. It's why I started the podcast. It is a tangled bowl of spaghetti. And <laughs> I don't look for answers on my podcast. I look for a robust discussion so that it isn't this person's good, this person's bad, they need this, this is the only answer. You know, any success that I've had in managing my addictions and mental illness has been from throwing as much shit against the wall and seeing what sticks. And so I just want the, the podcast to be, um, I, I am not the solution. My podcast is not the solution for people. It's a place for people to have conversations. I, I consider myself a cheerleader for the professionals out there, the therapists, the social workers, you know, the group therapy, uh, and for and for support groups. That that is what I try to champion. And there's also, you know, an entertainment factor. Ultimately, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 not a college class. I'm uh an an entertainer. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I've been doing this show every week for more than two years, and I pretty much do it all by myself. 
I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom, where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M and join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. I want to talk about what kinds of conversations you've had with people about the pandemic. When I came on your show 11 years ago, it it would have been unimaginable what happened Mm. in the years since. But I want to start by asking what the pandemic was like for you. I loved it at first. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of people did. There was, and I felt awful for loving the the isolating factor of it. Uh, I felt like a monster for the comfort of my inner world finally matching the outer world. You know, my girlfriend would always make fun of me when I would go shopping because I would buy 10 of everything, you know? my Even before the pandemic, you mean? Oh, yeah. 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 So when it hit, I was like, I got 50 rolls of toilet paper. I got, <laughs> you know- 50 rolls of paper towels. Uh, I got five tubes of toothpaste. Uh, but wait, why were you doing that? Were you a prepper or something? What, what, what did this have to do with your mental state? I wouldn't call myself a doomsday prepper, <laughs> but there is always a part of me that when I walk out the door, there is uh, the world feels unsafe to some degree. And much less now than when I was younger, But I was also anesthetizing those fears when I was younger through, you know, acting out sexually or, you know, drinking and drugs or video games. So when I took those things away, I think those feelings were more at the surface, the, the desire to, you know, make a cocoon and stick in it. So when I didn't even have the option of leaving the house, there was something very comforting about it, but I also felt terrible because people were dying and suffering. So it was a, it was a mixed bag, but one of the uh, part of the podcast, as you probably know, if you've listened to some episodes is it's an interview with the person. And the other half is me reading surveys filled out anonymously by listeners on the, on the internet and me reading those. And so I created a pandemic survey and did a couple of episodes that were devoted exclusively to people's experiences with the pandemic. And this was in the midst of it. But to, to go back to your original question was it, I had never felt like my in, inner world matched the outer world as much as it did when the, when the pandemic 
hit. Wow. Like it was unsafe. Like there was something dystopian yes. about the world for real. I find comfort in dystopian movies, especially ones that, that feel real. There is a part of my brain, I think, every day that is waiting for the other shoe to drop, whether it's society collapsing or my health collapsing. It just, I suppose it's the part of my brain that got developed when I was a kid, so I wouldn't be surprised by something awful happening. Do you think that people who struggle with you know, mental health issues or just anxiety sort of over-index for wanting the pandemic to kind of not end? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. some people. Yeah, absolutely. The isolators. Yeah. I mean, because you often hear people talk about how really this, it just, among all the other things the lockdowns did, it laid bare just how much anxiety so many people have. Mm-hmm. Like just and, and workaholism. I think that's one of yeah. the things that a lot of people. It was a revelation to them was that they needed a fucking break. Right. That they had this inner rat race going on in their head that they'd never truly confronted until they got a break from it. Yeah, and you know now we see things like people still not wanting to go out. People, you know, whatever one thinks of masking. I think that we can all agree that there are some people who are masking in situations where they really don't need to. There's no evidence, but they're still doing it. And you wonder why. Is that stuff that you've talked to people about? Have you actually, have you had any conversations with people about why they wear a mask and when and how often? Uh, I have not. I have not. And I suppose because in some way I feel like it, it wouldn't be a topic uh, broad and deep enough to devote an entire episode to, but I think it would certainly be a, an interesting conversation as part of a larger interview. I just, I suppose I've never really thought that much about it. When I see somebody still wearing a mask, I assume, you know, maybe they have uh, a grandparent living with them or they've got a uh, a compromised immune system. Yes, I think that too. But I also have talked to parents, for instance, who say my young child doesn't want to go out without a mask. Like they, you know, this was a small child when the when this all started, and it just they got so used to it that they feel naked without it. Wow, there's a lot of yeah. Ever occurred to me? Yeah, there's a lot of kids who don't want to take it off, and. You know, people, it's funny, like I've even had conversations with people who say, you know, I just, I feel like I'm not attractive, so I like to wear the mask. It just makes me feel safer, wow. more secure. You know what you, you're going to see about 20 years from now is people with sexual mask fetishes, people who were traumatized as children. And I'm like, you know, this is going to be a gigantic thing, but one of the things that I read was post-World War II, people that were children and adolescents who were underground wearing gas masks during the bombing in London, their fetish uh, as adults was sex with gas masks on. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I, it's one of the things that I've 
learn the most about is the relationship between childhood and adolescent trauma and sexual fantasies. Mm -hmm. And it helped me understand some of the fantasies that I had. Um, Some of them were short-lived, you know, after the stuff with my mom kind of came to the surface, you know, one of the sexual fantasies that I'd never had before, but all of a sudden I had was tricking my mom into giving me a hand job. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to talk about that. Not that anybody was making me talk about it, but having read so many people's discussing their struggle with, uh, the morality of their, you know, and morality is in, uh, in air quotes of their, turn-ons and having really no conscious connection to the things that had happened them, you know, helped me forgive myself for, you know, not being a quote-unquote normal person whose fantasy was, you know, something vanilla like sex on the beach, you know, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. But uh, there was one survey in particular that I read that I was like, if I could only read one survey to highlight that connection, and this not that this occurs all the time, but for for some people, uh, and mine was fleeting. It lasted, you know, maybe a couple of years. As, as I healed, uh, it, it 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 faded away. But this person, uh, it was a guy who had been um, uh, molested by his his babysitter. She she had red hair. And she would make, and I apologize if I'm getting graphic, but she would force him to finger her. And the only thing that he can get off to today is watching pornography where a finger is being inserted into a woman with red pubic hair. And I see so many examples of this. And so it is another thing that I see mental health struggles with are people who hate themselves for the things that turn them on. And my one of my soapboxes on the podcast is if you are not hurting anybody and you are not degrading the quality of your life with these fantasies, be nice to yourself. In fact, it might even bring you closer to your partner if you can voice these fantasies in the bedroom, maybe even role play. Mm. And that is a component of mental health that people do not talk about. That is a really good point. And at the same time, the culture is increasingly sort of fixated on kink and destigmatizing kink, not only normalizing it, celebrating it, amplifying it. And it just becomes, I think, like really confusing uh, for people. Like, is, is my kink my identity? I wonder if you have thoughts about that or if you've had I do. discussions about that. I do. Many. Many discussions about it, and in my support group as well, because a kink can can be great. It's the way that the kink is integrated into your life. I think if it becomes something that is degrading the other areas of your life, it's if it's consuming your every waking thought, it's compromising your relationships and your ability to relate to other human beings if you can still only relate to people as uh you know in terms of what you can give or get from them sexually that's that's not healthy uh and so i i I like to put the the moral component of it aside 
you know, again, as long as you, nobody is being harmed and it's all consensual, consensual and, and transparent. Uh, that's one of the things that I've learned in my support groups around intimacy is, are you living a balanced life? And in, is sex um, a tool for you to expand your life rather than have it just be all about one thing? And that's for each person to decide. That's not for other people to decide. It's a question to ask yourself is, am I, am I using this to escape my life? Or am I using it to express my life? Because I think a lot of times we can lie to ourselves and say, I'm just expressing myself. Right. Do people talk about just how much sex is in the zeitgeist, in, in the ether? I mean, it's just, this is such an obvious question, but I wonder like how often this comes up with people who are struggling with this. Like, it's just, it's online. It's everywhere. You can get it. A very young kid can start getting this and you can look at it throughout your childhood and adolescence and beyond. Like, do, do people that you talk about this stuff with tend to think that there should be sort of less sexual material out in the open? Uh, I don't know if I've ever asked that question per se. I think we've we've more so talked about maybe that person's struggle because I try to focus in on their story and their experiences. Um, we do sometimes talk in, in generalities about subjects as a whole, but I just always assume that everybody feels like there's too much sexualizing of things to avoid the feelings underneath the need to sexualize things. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, and that's been my personal story. Uh, it never occurred to me that I was objectifying and sexualizing women because I was afraid of a woman overwhelming me with her needs and lack of boundaries, just like my mom. And so it was easier to see them as objects than it would be to see them as a human being. And in my support group meetings is where I began to see women in three dimensions. And you know, it was interesting because a lot of times, like you know, a, a woman would come into the meeting, and you know, if if I found her attractive, I would be in fantasy. I, you know, I wouldn't express anything outwardly. You know, I had boundaries, etc. But as time went on, and I began to hear their struggles and their flaws, and see them as human beings, I began to see them as my sisters, for lack of a, of a better word. And I began to develop platonic relationships with clear set boundaries and, and true friendships where I could cry on their shoulders and they would cry on my shoulders. And they would say, you know, I, I've, I feel so safe talking to you. And that was mind-blowing to me because when I rolled into that support group, I felt like if these women, women knew what my past looked like, they will want nothing to do, to, to do with me. And it was quite the opposite 
as I began to share my shame of, you know, having pressured women, you know, in the, in the past into, into having sex with me, you know, in my, um, in my mind way back when I was, you know, the worst of, of my acting out, I would tell myself, well, if I'm not physically restraining a woman, uh, that's not violating her boundaries. Mm. You know, it's okay to pester a woman into having sex. And of course, now I'm, I'm horrified at, at that attitude. So when I would confess these things in my support group, you know, I would be looking at my shoes, um, just uh, disgusted with myself. And what I found was a lot of the women in there were grateful that they were getting, even if it was a secondhand apology from the type of man that they had, had encountered, they were more grateful for my honesty than they were disgusted by my past behavior. And that was really, really healing for me because I was struggling with self-acceptance and self-love because I always felt like there's this corner of my soul that is so disgusting. How can, who am I to love myself when there is this part of me? Um, and so that began uh, the process of accepting myself with the caveat that I've got to also you know, make sure that I embody the apology and the the regret that that I have by not being that guy anymore. I'm really interested that you brought up the pestering for sex scenario. This is something that I've written about a lot and talked about a lot since the last time you and I spoke. I mean, obviously the Me Too movement happened. So much has happened with the dialogue around all of this. I find myself in a lot of conversations with women about how to handle that kind of situation, especially if, you know, I think we can all agree, or at least I strongly believe that being pestered for sex is not the same as being forced into sex. As you just said, that is not, I don't like the word violence used in that way. I I think that it's important to, you know, sort of hold women accountable for their own choices People have agency. However, being with a pouting guy and certainly a pestering guy mm -hmm. is a really difficult and also annoying situation. What is the best way for a woman to handle that? Since I have you here and you are a, a former pesterer for sex, yeah. like what's a good way to get out of that without it being completely awkward or the guy getting mad at you or all the things that we fear? Well, my initial thought is let's address this towards the guy and say, pay attention. Even if she's not loudly saying no, look at it. it if, she, if she isn't uh, um, clearly into what it is that you are doing or asking, you know, back off. That to me is the the first conversation. Uh, the the to answer or give my opinion on your specific question, and and this is not it is not her responsibility, but since you asked, an ideal situation 
if that guy was an ignoramus or you know selfish or what you know whatever still pestering it would it would certainly help to say no mm-hmm. clearly firmly and if that's not respected leave the situation uh you know one of the things that i have had to do in growing healing you know moving towards being the guy that i want to be is you know not only setting my boundaries but understanding where somebody else's boundaries are i used to assume you know if i'm comfortable talking about sex somebody else must be <laughs> no mm-hmm. i cringe <laughs> when i look back at the number of times i've just launched into a conversation about sex with somebody who was probably like, get this fucking creep away from me. <laughs> it's such a it's such a good icebreaker. What do you <laughs> yes. mean? Well, one of the that things was a great way to start off. It, and and in doing that, I realized that I also lacked an ability for myself to walk through the fear of somebody being upset with me or them being uncomfortable by me stating my needs and boundaries. You know, the the greatest example of that. For me, was this was I don't know probably twenty years ago, and there were the a floor was being put in on my house, a wood floor, and I walked into the room where the workmen were, and this is how long ago it was. Was this guy was stealing my CDs, and I was <laughs> so worried about his feelings, I pretended uh, I didn't see him. Oh my god, I totally relate to that. And I it's your fault. It's your fault that he's stealing your CDs. <sighs> The, the CDs, hate, hate. The, the skirt of your CDs was too short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's face it. They were asking yeah. for it. Did you see how your box set was dressed? Yeah. Come on. Uh, and while I intellectually knew this was fucked up for me being worried about this guy being fired or him, you know, uh, feeling awkward or ashamed, I couldn't do it. I couldn't confront him. And it wasn't until years later that I began to realize this was all, all of these things were mixed up in me, these boundary issues. And so one of the things that I began to realize is the most important tool for me today is my willingness to have difficult conversations. And if I can, and this all goes back to your question to me, is if I'm willing to have a difficult conversation, there's a really, really good chance that I can find the right words at the right time with the right tone of voice that I can walk away from the conversation feeling like that person doesn't like me, fuck them, because I voiced my needs, boundaries, opinion, whatever, in a way that was very respectable, you know, whatever you want to call it. And that to me is a tool that I, that I use today because addictions, intimacy, avoidance, the gasoline for those things is sweeping shit under the rug and ignoring our own needs and tolerating toxic people and toxic behavior in our, in our lives. Yeah. I'm really glad you put it that way because I feel like the skills necessary to negotiate a tricky in-person situation have just been lost. Mm-hmm. 
people are so accustomed to dealing with most things over the screen. Like they're not having face-to-face contact. And that's, I think, why the sexual situations, especially for these sort of younger generations coming up, are so vexing because they're just not, that's that's one situation that you can't deal with over a screen, right? It's not a texting interaction. It's you're there in person. There's a whole bunch of, you know, nonverbal cues. There's a whole bunch of things going on that you really have to have an intuitive sense about. And people don't have those skills. and you know, the, 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 the pestering thing, it, it's like, I, I think, you know, we, we all know what to do when somebody is physically assaulting you. Okay. It's, it's obvious what to do. Not that it's easy to do. It's not easy to get free, run out of the room, whatever it is, but the, the rules are clear. Okay. The protocol is clear. If somebody's whining or saying, Oh, yeah. you know, why can't you, why did you, you know, I bought you dinner or whatever. Kind of, come on, be nice to me. I mean, it reminds me of those horrible scenes with Harvey Weinstein that were captured on audio, you know, when he's just begging and pleading with the, I think it was the, was it the Italian model? Um, I think she had captured him. She was wearing a, a hidden mic and like, just so pathetic. Yeah. And so many women heard that and it was like, oh yes, that's what it is. It's not even, this guy isn't threatening as much as he's pathetic. And because he's pathetic, it kind of strips us of our feeling of having a right to just get up and leave. If he was assaulting me, it would be clear what to do. Yes. And I, and I think there are, are three things in there that need to be talked about and should be talked about, I think, in school. I mean, fuck algebra. Yeah. Let's talk about how do you handle situations that are uncomfortable? Yeah. Number one, I think the culture of girls need to be nice, you know, make everybody happy. That's, you know, that's, that's a great feminine quality. You know, I think that needs to, to be dismissed. And I think you know, not only women, but people in general need to begin to have a script to go to when they're uncomfortable and somebody else isn't getting it. You know, when I have a a, a difficult conversation with somebody, whether it's somebody who's monopolizing a conversation or, you know, somebody who's pressuring me into something that one of the first things I will say is I will try to say something positive about that person. Something that's not a lie. It could be, I care about you. You know, I was excited to come out and see you tonight. Here's what's going on. And this is hard for me to say, but I'm uncomfortable right now. I, I'm I'm feeling unheard and I don't want to feel that way. And I figured you would want to know that. Mm. And that to me is a way where I'm putting the ball in their court because I'm not attacking who they are. I'm expressing things in terms of my feelings and I'm putting the ball in their court, which gives them an opportunity to reveal their character. Okay. And what would be a good response from them? Uh, wow. I hear you. And, and I'm sorry, I didn't realize that I was making you uncomfortable. Please forgive me. Mm-hmm. That is certainly not always the response. Sometimes that person will go to defending themselves. Well, I just thought this, you know, and that is not a a great response. You know, ultimately, I think the most important thing is: does that person take it in, and do they respect 
your setting of a boundary. Some people are going to handle it better than others, but ultimately, whether or not that person respects that is all the information I need on whether or not I want to continue to have a relationship with that person, whether it's, you know, platonic, romantic, what, whatever. And it's been a really healthy thing for my relationship with my girlfriend. You know, a couple of years ago, she said something that hurt my feelings. And I was so afraid to say it because I was like, oh, I don't want to sound like a baby, you know. But I, because of all the work that I've done in the support groups, I knew this is important for intimacy. I don't want the shit swept under the rug that makes me silently resent here. And to be in my head, you know, when we're having sex about why didn't I say that? Or, you know, why didn't I do this? Because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling resentful. And so I said, you know, when you said that thing yesterday, it hurt my feelings. And she took it in and she apologized. And I think we grew as a couple from that. She revealed her character and, and it helped me, I, I, I think, fall in love with her even more. So there are so many wins to be had from having the discussions yeah. during or after uncomfortable situations. Of course, it's ideal if we have them during, but sometimes we're afraid to. And if it has to be the next day, it's, it's the next day. Yeah. And, and I like that you use the word uncomfortable that you advise saying, I feel uncomfortable in this because I think a lot of people do this thing and I'm guilty of this where they'll be like, Oh my God, I know I'm crazy. I know I, you know, I, I'm just being crazy, but I don't like that you're doing this. I mean, less so in like a interpersonal, like intimate situation, like that's would be a little, little off, but you know, in a professional situation, or if you're trying to criticize somebody's work or something like that, or just register that you're not into something, you'd be like, oh, you know, but I'm, I know I'm weird or I know I'm being insane and just, I'm, I'm really anal. I'm really OCD. It's just my OCD Mm -hmm. acting up. It's so easy to fall back on those things. And it may be kind of like, you know, a bandaid in the moment, but in the long run, it just adds to your problems with this person. Exactly. And and the thing that I would suggest is stand up for yourself with the words you would use to stand up for your best friend if that was happening for them. Mm. Would you say, nah, my best friend's weird. She's very OCD. <laughs> so maybe don't grab her ass on the elevator and make a joke like it's not sexual. Right. Pick somebody else to grab their ass. <laughs> grab somebody else's ass. Yeah, that is not acceptable. And, you know, that's really fucked up. Why would you do that? Yeah. I feel like there's also a way to do this with humor. Like, not not humor necessarily, but just lightness. Like, dude, what are you doing? Like, I think that there's kind of a way to avoid heaviness with these moments. Yeah. Like, just kind of be like, are you stealing my CDs right now? Are you serious? <laughs> like, am I? is this what I'm seeing? And why would you steal Zeppelin? That's exactly. like... Wow, right. that was one of their weakest albums. I know. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. That is an advanced level skill, Uh, but I think it's worth aspiring to. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I, I think speaks to how difficult it can be in the moment when we want to protect somebody's feelings. Years, this is, I don't know, maybe 2017 and um, a, a, a woman was staying with me who We'd kind of briefly had, this was before I met my girlfriend and after I was, uh, you know, my marriage broke up and we'd kind of briefly been romantic. I don't know, whatever you want to call it online. And she came 
to town to visit. And, you know, I, I said, you, you know, stay with me. And, and one of the things I said was, I, I don't want an intimate relationship with you anymore. I just, you know, like to be friends. And, but there was also part of me that was lonely. And so I don't remember if she suggested or I suggested that we sleep in the same bed together, but I made it clear that, you know, I, I did not want to be physical. And she had a couple of drinks and she started touching me and I was not into it. And I don't remember if I, you know, pushed her hand away or what, but I felt sorry for her and I went along with it and I hated every minute of it. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that I went, wow, men can also be on the receiving end. Oh, of, totally. Of this. this is something I talk about all the time. It never occurred to me. Oh, for sure. And because and I think it's almost it's hard in a different way for men because if you refuse, you're going to be accused of not being masculine, of not being sexual, of not being heterosexual, whatever it is. There's a whole other set of stigmas uh, that go along with men refusing sex. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that brings up the important topic of manipulation. And I think manipulation is going to enter into situations when we are unwilling to respect somebody else's boundaries or uh, identify our needs and set our boundaries and stick to them. You know, one of the things I learned is if you're going to set a boundary, you got to be willing to give that person who violates it consequences, whether it's leaving the room, ending a relationship with them, having a, you know, some kind of consequence. It, do, it doesn't have to be something that is, um, that demeans them or you know, takes their inventory of, you know, on their worth as a human being. But I, any situation that I go into today, I am willing to hang up the phone or leave the room. And that has been a lifesaver for me because I used to just say, oh, well, I have to be willing. I should be willing to keep that person pleased while I get into this battle about what's right or wrong or, you know, what I, you know, what my opinion is. No, I don't have, I, that person is not owed in the moment an explanation for my decision. As they, as they say in uh, codependency meetings, no is a complete statement. Right. Right. Ugh. I know. I need to keep that in mind. There's nothing I hate more than somebody being mad at me. Nothing. You know why we made a decision that we did. Now, I, and, you know, that might be okay to ask, but it's also okay for us to say, I, I don't really want to talk about it right now, or I don't owe you. Explanation, you know, whatever it is that 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 we say, and those are all the parts of self care that I never knew had to do with my addiction to escape my feelings. Yeah. Well, Paul, this is an amazing conversation. You always have great conversations, so I'm honored that you. Oh, thank had you. Them with with me today, I'm going to keep you for a little bit. Uh, for our paying sure. subscribers, we're going to do some bonus content where I'm going to ask you about how you feel about being the age that you are, and you're going to, we'll only reveal your age in that portion of the conversation. So if, if people want to stick around for that, they can uh, become paid subscribers if they're not already. But in time, Paul. Megan, I, 
I think my Led Zeppelin reference gives him a ballpark. Okay. Well, of, of my age, but go right. ahead. Either yes. you or but, maybe you were extremely, you know, you got those very young, to- you know, some some kids they just know early that they're into Led Zeppelin or they're yes. just prodigies. Yes. They're just, you know, that's very, true. Very precocious. All right, Paul. Well, mental illness happy hour. What else do people need to know about you? Where can they find you? Uh, yeah, the uh, website is metalpod.com and metalpod, also the social media handles. You can follow me slash the podcast at. And then I, um, uh, for comedy, I do social and political satire. And that can be found on Twitter at dumbpile, D-U-M-B-P-I-L-E. They canceled my Instagram account <laughs> because I think they thought that the satirical wikipedia pages i was posting were (laughs) misinformation oh Um, no i think so but yeah they fake news wow yeah uh i have a substack account it's uh paulgilmartin.substack.com and so there's you know fake headlines fake wikipedia pages I do a satirical right-wing congressman character uh, on the uh YouTube channel at dumb dumb pile. Oh, you've been doing that a lo- long long time, time since '04. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Republican Representative Richard Martin. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, dumb pile is a good uh, a good way to uh, follow me. Okay, great. And uh, you're gonna stay for a little bit longer, and we're gonna do some bonus content for paying subscribers. We're gonna talk about how you feel about being the age that you are, and you're gonna reveal that for our paying subscribers only. In the meantime, Paul, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it. That was my conversation with comedian Paul Gilmartin, host of the weekly audio podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. Again, you can hear a good healthy chunk uh, of extra stuff from this interview on my Substack page at megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M. That is where you can become a paying subscriber at any level and get access to this bonus content that I'm going to be doing more of this year. I'm going to be keeping my guests uh, for a little extra stuff uh, whenever possible, whenever they're willing. And um, it's a lot of fun. So check that out if you're interested. I will also say, and I don't say this enough, that if you appreciate the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, preferably positively, uh, you know, five-star reviews would be ideal. You know, I'll take a four-star review, you know, keeping it honest. So that's really a big help. So even if you are not in a position to support the podcast monetarily, those ratings and reviews are a big, big, big help. So anyway, appreciate that. And that's it for now. I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. (laughs) 